listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is On the NBA Beat. I'm Joshua Jonah Fishman, introducing a wide-ranging Los Angeles Clippers discussion with our guest, ESPN.com NBA writer and editor, Andrew Hahn. Recorded on Friday the 13th, we fittingly brought on the somewhat mysterious Hahn, who likes to minimize his digital footprint by solely using Twitter and offering only this as his fun fact. So, don't look for him on Facebook, but do listen to what he has to say on the Clippers, a team that jumped out to a 14-2 start, only to experience a defensive decline exacerbated by key injuries. Let the show begin. Andrew Hahn, what's up? Oh man, that's so abrupt. You just, <laughs> you just come right into it like that. No, uh, no introduction, no greeting, but how's it going? Good, it's going well, and, and I like how we're going to confuse our listeners when we add our intro that we'll record later, right before you say there's no intro. But anyway, you'll, you'll discover very quickly that uh, if you tell me not to do something, that that's going to drive my impulse to do it. Yeah, confusing listeners might be the goal of this episode. It's a good time, too, to talk about the Clippers. We're exactly halfway into the regular season, 41 games in for them. Basically, the first quarter, they had the top defense along with the Hawks, if you look at efficiency, and they've really slipped. Between December 4th and January 4th, their defensive rating ranked 27th in the league. It's improved a little bit the last three games, but from your perspective, what do you think has been the main reason or reasons for that decline? Oh, man. Where to begin with the Clippers defense? (laughs) I would say... So like you said, the first two or three weeks in the season, they had the top defense in the league. I think early on, it was like a defense of historic proportions where it was in the low 90s. And then it slowly started to creep up. And they needed it at the time because the offense was not clicking at all. And historically, I think when you think about the Clippers, specifically with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, you think about Lob City and hyper-efficiency on offense. And then you think of like average to middling defense. But... Early this season, it was completely the opposite, where their defense was ridiculously good, and they couldn't get anything going on offense. So they re- really relied on their defense to win a lot of those games. I think they got out to a 14-2 and start at the beginning of the season. That was largely defense-driven. And then when their offense started to kick in, it almost seemed like they eased up a little on defense, and they didn't necessarily want to expend as much energy on that end. One of the things that they did early this year was a lot of switching because one of my favorite guys on the team, Luke Bonmute, the starting small forward for the Clippers, uh, is a very versatile defender. He can guard point guards all the way up through most centers as the situation dictates. And on any given night, you will typically find him with the toughest defensive assignment for the team. And because he's so versatile, the Clippers switched a lot of their coverages early in the season. Blake Griffin in particular, because even though Blake is not the 
best defender. He certainly has the athletic ability to stay with most players, whether they're perimeter players or big men. And so Blake and Luke would switch a lot. And I think one of the issues that occurred is that they started to switch more and more. And there's that balance between switching because everyone is on a string and you know what your teammates and the people behind you are thinking and switching out of laziness because it's just easier to do that than to fight over screens or to fight through pin downs, things of that nature. Not to call the Clippers out to say that they're lazy or weren't giving enough effort, but in layman's terms, they were being lazy and not giving enough effort (laughs) on defense. And I think that contributed to a lot of the defensive decline, even before Blake went out with injury. Yeah, it was already starting to slip, you're right. Yeah, so prior to injury, I think that's kind of what set all of it off. And then, of course, the injuries only made everything worse. And it's tough to get a feel for anything the Clippers did when Chris and Blake were both out. And JD, of course, was out for a couple of games as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe they did as the offense got back to their normally elite self. They slacked off on that end, got into bad habits. It's good to see the defense improving a little bit. But obviously, three games against not great teams is a really small sample size. Mm -hmm. And also, when Griffin comes back, he's an improved defender. So... That should help, I think, getting their starting lineup back healthy. Championship or bust seems kind of a little bit extreme of a thing to say for a franchise that's never even been to a Western Conference Finals. And so we all know the Clippers' painful history. And it's a league, obviously, with the Warriors and Cavaliers in it. So I think championship or bust is extreme and unfair. But then again... Griffin and Paul could opt out, which we'll ask you about next. But what do you think about fans or or people who say that if they don't win the championship this year, it's a failure of the season? Uh, It's kind of silly, I want to say. I guess to be slightly more pinpointed with the championship or bust idea, it's probably, like you said, what conference finals are bust. And then depending on the seating, it's Warriors or bust. Because if the Clippers end up in the four seed and the Warriors are the one seed, well, I don't think anyone expects the Clippers to beat the Warriors. And it would be unfortunate if they meet in the second round and the Warriors defeat the Clippers. But I don't think anyone would put their inability to get to a a conference finals for the first time in franchise history on the team when faced with basically a roster of historic levels in Golden State. Yeah, I, I don't like the idea of championship or bust for almost any team because there are a lot of fantastic teams that don't win a title for a variety of reasons. If Chris Paul, let's say, continues his production at the same pace for another five years but doesn't make it to a conference finals, is he somehow not one of the best NBA players to play all time? We count the rings or count how many finals you've been to argument seems a little silly to me. It's like, why are we even playing the regular season if that's the only thing that matters? Yeah, it's messy, definitely. Just so many factors. And also just in an era with these dominant Warriors and Cavaliers, too, it's it's so tricky. Before I kick it over to Joshua, I just want to say that now the emergence of the Rockets threatening for that three seed or higher, that also complicates things. As you mentioned, if the Clippers drop to fourth and have to draw the Warriors in the second round. Let me ask you this. 
Do you think the Rockets can sustain their their level of play? Because it seems like there's kind of a schism between the community right now of oh, like this is the Rockets will be a great regular season team, or it's an unsustainable pace. That might be a good question for Lauren because he watches the Rockets the most, probably more than than I do, certainly. Yeah, well, I think the Rockets' offense is always going to be there among the top of the league. The only question is if the Rockets' defense can keep up how they've been since uh, early December, where they've also been a top 10 team on defense. So if that's the case, if they don't get tired from their style of play and are able to keep up that energy, I don't see why the Rockets can't be the second or third team in the West. Well, but like a lot of a lot of analysts... Um, Russell Westbrook is obviously having a, you know, averaging a triple double for the season so far to this point. And the big question with him is, can he keep it up? And James Harden is having very similar numbers, but he's not getting the same level of scrutiny. Do you know why that is? I think there's less concern that James Harden can keep up what he's doing, at least on the offensive end, because what it's not necessarily driven by going all out every single play for Harden. It's just him being able to judge the situation and surrounding him with like a, a team that's best able to um, utilize those talents. But also just a quick thing I wanted to add, the difference between the Rockets and the Thunder and the standings is pretty immense. Right now their winning percentage is almost 760, whereas the Thunder are the sixth seed and they're around where the Jazz and Grizzlies are. Right, the so. Rockets- Right now, are on pace for sixty-two wins, I think. So, but also, I would add that the Rockets seem to possess many more weapons offensively. So, there's a lot less pressure, seemingly, on but, Harden. I would, I would say. But, but all of what we're saying isn't to say that the Clippers can't catch the Rockets when they get healthy and they're clicking on all cylinders. So, I don't know. I think it's interesting to follow. So back to the Clippers for a second, hopefully more seconds. Um, Do you think there's a legitimate concern for the team that both Chris Paul and Blake Griffin could realistically leave? And do you anticipate the team's performance in these playoffs factoring at all? I will take the second part first, which is to say that, yes, the playoffs will factor into whether any of the Clippers free agents, because J.J. Redick is also a free agent this offseason, whether those key Clipper contributors will return or not. Because if they just completely come apart in the first round, that is a different story than if all of them somehow get hurt and they lose, or if they make it to a conference finals and they lose, or if they somehow get through or around the Warriors and make it to a finals and they lose. Like All those things will greatly weigh on the two-be free agents realistically, I don't think Chris Paul or Blake Griffin, or Reddick, frankly, for that matter, will leave because just looking at the landscape of the NBA, where is the situation that can afford these players the same luxuries that they have in Los Angeles, which is a a major market. And a lot of people always say that uh, the Clippers are not just a second fiddle, but maybe even a third fiddle in LA next to USC football or the Dodgers or things like that, to be able to have all the amenities of a big market and not be constantly harassed by media or fans or things like that sounds pretty good from from my perspective. And then just in terms of roster composition, there's not a lot of teams in the league that are ready to be contenders that 
can shed the space or have the right pieces to complement Blake Griffin and or Chris Paul. Right. And a guy you love, your favorite player on the Clippers, Luke Richard, Bob Mute. He's looked like a completely different player so far this season. Do you think him having confidence in his offense and being much more aggressive has made all the difference? Or is there more to it than just that? I don't really know. That's an answer that I've been trying to figure out for the last couple of months. The team does a lot of gives a lot of praise to D Brown, who has supposedly been working with Luke in terms of recognizing when to drive and when to take his shots and things of that nature. And the front office and coaching staff are like ecstatic when he makes the right swing pass or drive to the rim or corner three-pointer, things of that nature. I don't really know if it's a question of his confidence. Like if you ask Luke, he would just say it's constantly working and uh, better recognizing the areas he's supposed to be in because it's, it's a tough situation to walk into to be the starting small forward for the Clippers because Redick, Paul, Griffin, and Jordan have now been together for four seasons, and they have a chemistry, and they have a routine and regimen that they go about. And that fifth guy needs to be able to slide in there without disrupting any of that. It's a little bit like, uh, I don't know if you guys played double dutch as kids, but there's like a rhythm that you have to get in there, and you don't want to screw it up and mess up the jump ropes and things of that nature. So, yeah, that's the convoluted way of saying I don't really know if it's just having confidence in, in the offense. But, yeah, Luke plays really well with those other guys. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't need the ball to be effective because, as you said, of course, he's an elite defender. But on offense, it's interesting. He's shooting so much better in wins than losses. Over 55% in Clipper wins, only 32.8 in losses. So I think it's safe to say that he's been an unsung hero so far in this Clippers team. Yeah. He I'm hits the price how unsung he is still. Not even this season, but the start of last season, so the 2015-16 season, I was having an argument with my editor about whether we should write a story about how Luke is the natural fit to be the starter for the Clippers. He's like, eh, no, I mean, like, it's the Clippers, and also it's Luke, so it's not that big of a deal. And obviously he is, and people still aren't really talking about it a full season and a half later. A reason why I'm not surprised that he's so unsung is those offensive guys in that starting unit, J.J. Redick from three, the lobs with DJ and that athleticism and transition, and then obviously Griffin and Paul. Bob Mute isn't flashy, he, but now he the difference is he makes the open three, and he's so decisive that if the defender sags off him or they double one of those other four great offensive players, he'll just attack the basket. That wasn't there last year. And because of that, it was like the five guys could defend the Clippers four guys. I think it just makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I think that one thing that the staff has started to realize is that Luke is not the most natural three-point shooter, obviously. And so for a lot of last season, they basically just stuck him in a corner and left him there and tried to just run their offense with him sitting on the sideline and he was the last line of offense, basically nothing else worked. And somehow like they were in a mess, they would just kick it to the corner and he would have to shoot it. But this season, there's a lot more cutting that's involved with Luke. And there's a lot of action for him that happens around 18 feet and 18 feet is a comfort zone for Luke in terms of shooting. 
18 feet is like a little bit longer than a free throw. And those, he has a lot more confidence in the ability to, to take and make those shots. And because of that, I think that not only does Luke have a better understanding for how his teammates operate, uh, the team in general has a better feel for how to get Luke in the best spots for him to succeed offensively. I think a lot of the narrative the past few years around the Clippers in their struggles has been that their big four guys that we've been talking about, JJ, Chris Paul, Blake, and DeAndre, can be as good as any team, but then their depth is really lacking when you get down to it. And to some extent, at least in the offseason, they shored that up by signing both Ray Felton and Mari Spates, who are both doing pretty well this year. Ray Felton's shooting almost 37% from three. That's his best mark since 2010. Spates, you know, he's the type of player that Doc Rivers likes, a three-point shooting backup big who can rebound relatively well and play defense. How would you assess those two guys' contributions to the bench? Okay, so while I answer that, I'm going to lob a second, a related question back to you guys to consider, which is just this season production only, just based on the first 41 games, has Ray Felton been the best backup point guard in the league? Just go ahead and mull that while I answer the Felton Space question, which boils down to, I think they've done a good job. I, I mean, just to answer my own question, I think Felton is arguably one of the best, if not the best, back- backup point guard in the league. Bates is kind of funny because I think a lot of people thought that he would have collected a larger contract in the offseason. And there was a run, a big run on wings and perimeter players because there's the idea that the Warriors are pushing the league towards small ball and big men have less value. And so he ended the Clippers ended up being able to snag him for a minimum contract. And it's the, I want to say, third year in a row where Doc has tried this big man that has range that he can play with either DeAndre or Blake. It was Last season was Spencer Hawes. The season before that was Byron Mullins. And so this year's Spates, and it looks like he's finally found a guy that is relatively reliable from deep. I think Spates leads the league in charges this year. And generally speaking, there's a lot more buy-in from the bench in terms of trying to do uh, the little things to help the team out. I think over the early span of the season, the defense amongst the bench players was also one of the best. And that definitely did not seem sustainable. But the just the Clippers bench being able to tread water when the bulk of the starters aren't in is a huge difference from seasons past. In particular, I want to say two seasons ago, when the Clippers had that ridiculous collapse in the second round against the Rockets up 3-1, that bench was painfully thin. And uh, Blake Griffin had said after that series was over, after they lost three straight to the Rockets, that he had never felt more exhausted than he did after that series was done because the, the starters had so much on their backs and shoulders throughout the season and into the playoffs because they couldn't rely on the bench at all. Coming back to your question about who's better at backup point guard for Ray Felton, no one really stands out. Maybe guys like Tim Frazier is having a really good season. Sure. But is he necessarily a backup a lot of the time? Right. Uh, Patty Mills, he's getting a lot of run depending on like what your opinion of someone like the current contributions of Corey Joseph and Marcus Smart, maybe, I don't know. But I mean, all I of these guys are, yeah, like Ray yeah. Felton, you can make an argument for, I think, this season at least. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been having arguments about this question with uh, basketball Twitter and reporters in general. There's a lot of confusion between guys you would rather have at point guard just in a theoretical sense versus what people have actually produced this year. And defensively, Ray Felton has been very good on the ball. I feel like he's done a reasonable job taking care of the offense and especially with Chris, I believe, missing seven games so far this season. He's had to play some shooting guard and even small forward at times just because the wings for the Clippers have been banged up. And I think he's been doing an admirable job. Yeah, I think that's an underrated thing too, how his turnover rate is really low, especially for a backup point guard slash shooting guard out of position sometimes, because those guys are usually a lot of the times relied on to just take over the second unit offense and just go. It brings me to the question of Doc Rivers as this sort of combination coach and executive that we've been seeing around the league. There's been a lot of concern these past few years whether he's balancing those two duties appropriately, whether the amount of time he spends devoted to coaching as he needs to allows him the time also to really do his due diligence as regards to scouting and player acquisition when it comes to these guys that he's picking up, especially in the past few years when it seemed like he tended to go to guys that he had previous knowledge of or who had played with him or had other connections with him. What's your assessment right now of Doc Rivers as an executive specifically? Okay, so I don't think that the time and attention that he has to dedicate to coaching impedes the ability to be a good executive. So there's this one popular theory amongst the basketball intelligentsia that you should not have a coach GM regardless of how good or bad they are, because these are two separate jobs that require two separate full-time entities of complete focus. And I reject that premise uh, because, hypothetically speaking, if Steve Ballmer, let's say, said, Doc, I love what you're doing, uh, but I would like a more seasoned executive in the front office to take care of all of these things that you don't have time for, and I would like to bring in Sam Hinkie, let's say, to be the general manager of the team and to run the scouting and the day-to-day stuff and the analytics and all that stuff. And obviously you're above him. So you can veto anything that he proposes, but this is what I would like done. And Doc says yes. And then Doc also decides that he trusts Pinky. Well, then that would be a perfect situation, wouldn't it? And Doc would still technically be running the front office and coaching the team, but he has someone that, most people think is a good executive running the ship from the front office perspective. In the past couple of years, that hasn't necessarily been the case. And I think that they've been doing the best job that they can. But this past offseason, I think they, I want to say that they hired 18 new executives in positions around the front office. And that's well and good, but I almost feel like it's, one season, if not two seasons, too late in order to fully take advantage of that because you think you would imagine that uh, it takes some time for people to get up to speed and to identify all of the hidden gems and scouting reports and things of that nature that they haven't been utilizing up to this point. So I guess to sum it up, like yeah. historically, Doc as an executive 
whether it's his own doing or it was Balmer's decision to kind of wait and assess what they already had. They haven't been running at full capacity or living up to whatever potential they had, which I think bears out in the results of all of their front office transactions. And this season is, is really the first season where we've seen a marked difference in anything that they're doing organizationally. I'm going to ask you quickly about Doc Rivers' son. He's definitely not as terrible as casual fans like to say. He, over the last, I think, four, three, four years or so, has gotten way better at attacking the rim. He was terrible in that area. Now he's shooting over 40% from three, which I didn't think I'd see from him. Talk about that conundrum. He can't be as bad as people say, but he's also not that great either, I think. Yes, I do not think he is as bad as people say. I'm of the opinion that, like, what would you say is Austin Rivers' ideal career trajectory? To me, it would be Patrick Beverly, maybe, like a dogged defender and then also a good spot of three-point shooter and maybe occasionally drive to the rim. But Patrick Beverly is not empowered to run an offense or to set other guys up. I don't think necessarily think that that's Austin's strong suit either. But like you said, he's shooting over 40% from three now. And he has the size to be a capable defender. And he's a willing defender. But I think at times, and I think early in his season, this was much more apparent. He was trying to do things that were too fast for his body to execute. I remember when he was a senior in high school and he was like one of the top prospects in, um, in high school heading into college, that he was garnering comparisons to Kobe. And you would see all of these like highly sophisticated moves, dribble moves and like jab steps and things like that. And people were just salivating over the idea that like, oh, Doc Rivers' kid is, could be the next Black Bamba. And that stuff worked in high school because the guys are smaller and slower then. And it kind of worked in college because you're not necessarily competing against fully mature individuals. But in an NBA, none of that stuff works. So you like early in his career, you would see Austin do like a dribble step and a fake and then a crossover and then another fake and then go between the legs. And the guy is just standing there like, what are you doing? And when <laughs> Austin would finally try to drive, he would just bat the ball away. And you see a lot of that inefficiency in motion trimmed down uh, when he plays now. And even when he's finishing around the rim, you'll see what happens is he takes these drag steps to kind of slow his momentum down so that he can kiss it off the glass and into the basket early in his time in uh, New Orleans. And like maybe for a little bit, even when he was with the Clippers, he would just go full speed, get a first step past his guy. And he, it, it's almost like he would be so excited that he got past his guy and got a clear lane to the rim that he wouldn't slow down at all and go 100% at it. And then the ball would ricochet off the backboard and would go 15 feet the other direction. <laughs> that, yeah. None of that happens anymore because he slows down at the rim in order to, to properly finish. Um, so I think that the not to use the cliche term that the game is slowing down for him, or maybe he's slowing down with the game. Yeah, he still has the really quick step, but he's finishing now, and he's been in recent years, so that's really good to see and valuable for the Clippers and their bench. We're just trying to take advantage of having you here, so we're just jumping around really fast to a couple of different things, but DeAndre Jordan's free throw shooting has improved a lot. It's still in the low 50s, obviously not good. But from a basketball entertainment standpoint, personally, I really like that 
he's now neutralizing the hack a DJ strategy, attempting three fewer free throws per game now. Because if you're over 50%, there's less of a reason for teams to purposely foul you. The trajectory is lower than it used to be. He has well, a different release point. Do you think that he's reducing the, like, he's making the hack a shack tactic less palatable because he's shooting 50%? Or the, the tactic is less palatable because of the rule change? I don't think, to, to be honest, I, sorry to interrupt, I don't think that the rule change has made so much of a difference because still there's a lot of the game, a huge chunk where you can foul off the ball. So I think it's more, when you're 43%, that's a lot worse than 52, even if it's only nine percentage points. Because the 50% margin, I think, or the 50% rate is, is kind of the barometer. That's my opinion, at least. But also, people, coaches are even superstitious. And either if a guy is making many consecutively, they say, okay, he's due to start missing a lot, or they think he's feeling it that night. So even in this day and age of all this information and analytics, I think coaches are irrational and superstitious too sometimes. Well, yeah. And the other thing too is that I guess we would have to go back and, and look through all of the, the hack-a-shack instances for DeAndre. But if a player gets repeated looks at free throws in quick succession, you would imagine that they fall into a rhythm more quickly and more comfortably. Dwight Howard is famous for ma- making a bunch of free throws in practice and in warm-up. Before doing. games, he's like automatic. It's like yeah. he gets nervous or something in games. I've, I've seen him make like 20 for 20 before a game, just sitting yeah. out court. And if you just constantly get the ball over and over again because they're intentionally fouling you, it sets up a similar instance as those practice sessions in an actual game. I think like part of the reason why it's more difficult to make free throws in a game is that it's a break in action and you're not and it's not like you were just sitting there doing your shooting technique over and over again and then there's the crowd noise and things of that nature. But if you are doing the hack a shack tactic, then the crowd gets upset and the energy's taken out of the arena and the pressure only mounts if you start missing a bunch in a row. But at the same time, how often do you get to shoot five, six, seven, eight times in a row at a game and be able to develop that feel for whether you're shooting long or short or to the right or to the left. In the case of DeAndre's shooting form this year, honestly, I'm not totally sure what he's doing differently. I feel like for the longest time, he would do something and then it would work and then it stops working. And then the next game, you would see something change in what he's doing, whether it's his preparation or whether it's where he releases the ball or how quickly he releases it, whether he's going to use his shoulder and elbow in order to push the ball further or whether it's all wrist right now what he's doing is he's not cocking the ball back much but when he brings it up it's a lot of wrist release action as to whether this is something that can sustain itself long term i don't know the answer to that i think uh who's the player is that a, a rockets player lauren that is shooting underhand these days onuaku yeah onuaku yeah rookie yeah he and andre drummond i don't understand why they don't do it more often i mean like i guess they could deny it publicly and we would never know and privately they were doing it and maybe it's not making a difference for them but uh if they're not at least doing it in the privacy of their gyms i i just don't understand why why that is yeah they should at least explore the possibility they can't be much worse than they've been jj reddick does so much for this team can you expound on this? Explain to casual observers who might say that JJ simply is a great shooter 
and benefits from playing with elite guys like Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and DeAndre Jordan? The last instance that I remember this occurring is during the draft when draft Knicks were saying, Buddy Heald is this great shooter from Oklahoma, and I could very easily see him be a J.J. Redick-type player in the league. And a J.J. Redick-type player in the league is really good. Like, J.J. Redick didn't just come into the league and, and play the way that he is now. He was six years in Orlando with Stan Van Gundy, and Stan was very hard on him in terms of how he needed to improve defensively and how he needed to change his game offensively. And now Redick, I think, along with Kyle Korver, Clay Thompson, these are elite-level off-ball shooters, and they're not, they're not just sitting around on the perimeter waiting for the ball to pass to them to, to throw it up. They're generating so much offense and movement off the ball with cuts that they run and the flare screens and pin downs and back picks that that teams run for them. And like, well, JJ hasn't done this in a while, but he does this floppy action that I call merry-go-round floppy, where he and the small forward are basically underneath the rim. And Reddick will just like run in circles around the small forward until he decides the direction he's going to go. And the defender has to sit there and try and anticipate which way it's going to go. And it's very confusing for a defense to try and stay on a string with a player who is borderline 50-40-90 annually trying to muck up their defense in that fashion. This idea that, that anyone's calling J.J. Redick is overrated is just, you know, my, my blood doesn't boil for much, but that's, that's getting there. Jamal Crawford is an interesting player in that for at least the past couple off-seasons now, it seems like the Clippers have been widely believed to be moving on from him. But he's still on the team and still scores a lot off the bench, although often not efficiently. What are your thoughts on Crawford's role on the team? My feeling on Jamal Crawford has softened considerably over his tenure with the Clippers. When he first got here, I guess especially at the time, I think they... The Clippers potentially had an option between Ray Allen and Courtney Lee, who are much more conventional shooters and shooting guards in the league. Um, that would have been my preference. And Jamal is more of a gunner, classic six-man type player. Um, Jamal gets stuck in a lot of crappy situations, not just by the Clippers, but by a lot of teams that he's on, because he is shown a propensity to make bad shots and he has a willingness to take bad shots so often what happens and over the past couple of years i feel like the clippers have leaned on this to the point of a detriment for both crawford and the team that when the second unit or sometimes even with chris paul and blake griffin you'll see them defer to jamal late in the shot clock because no offense was generated and the defense is locked in and set and they just throw the ball to jamal it's like hey Go make a basket. This is this is what you do. And then Jamal is forced to kind of shake and bake and create some kind of 40% shot that is not really a good shot, but then he's capable of making it. And then if he misses it, people get on his case saying like, oh, why did you take that, that shot, Jamal? Like Chris or Blake should have taken that shot. But then they just kind of stuck him with the ball with seven seconds left on the shot clock. So um, he's not having a particularly efficient year this year. But I think... Historically, if you look at Jamal's catch-and-shoot numbers, especially if they come from Chris or Blake Griffin, uh, he shoots pretty well off of those in those situations. Uh, I just feel like they are not, uh, they're overextending Crawford's abilities more than they should. Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time already. We just have one more question for you. 
Uh, okay. Earlier this week, January 10th, KG was brought on as a team consultant that reunites him with Doc Rivers and Paul Pierce. What do you think is the expected value of this move, and where are the areas that you think he can help the big men the most? That's the $64,000 question of the week, right? Like, how is KG going to help this team? I imagine that their trash talking will get better. Otherwise, Garnett, I want to say on Tuesday, was working with DeAndre before practice. And then Wednesday at the game, one of the things DeAndre started to do was, instead of doing that Tyson Chandler tip out that he has gotten accustomed to doing the past couple of years, uh, when he's close enough to the rim, he's instead tried to corral the ball and go back up with it. That was one change. And some, some people have speculated as to whether that was Garnett saying, hey, when you're close to the rim like that, don't bother trying to restart the offense. If there's not a lot of guys around, get the ball and go back up and get your buckets. I think the main contribution Garnett will give, and I think Blake Griffin may, might actually benefit the most from this, is to have the defensive focus and discipline maintaining throughout the season. I think we started off the pod discussing the declining effort that the Clippers gave as the season progressed, which accounted for their defensive slide. Blake Griffin has shown himself to be a good defender when he's locked in. That first round series against the San Antonio Spurs, I guess now three seasons ago, Blake was far and away the best player on the court. Defensively, he was excellent. Offensively, he was excellent. Early in the season this year, Blake was very, very good defensively. And not to single him out, but he's also one of the reasons why the defense started to show signs of, of cracks and fatigue before everyone started to get hurt. And I think Garnett being around the team, helping the big men stay focused and have a better mental approach to the way that they view the game will be very beneficial to them. I was just talking to Zach Harper uh, about this, I want to say two days ago. And he was saying that when Garnett was with the Timberwolves last season, Carl Anthony Towns was just a monster in all aspects of the game. Offensively, he was plugged in. Defensively, he was plugged in. And now that Garnett is not with the team, this idea that the Timberwolves were going to make a defensive leap because Thibodeau is now their coach hasn't quite happened. And Towns does not look like the sure-footed rookie on defense that we saw last season. And Harper attributes a lot of that to Garnett's influence. There definitely is that sense of influence that KG brings. When asked about a DeAndre Jordan joke that KG is going to get tired of him, Hopefully you're not tired of us by now, Andrew. Can I ask a question before we sign off? What's the deal <laughs> with this? What's the deal with this Jeopardy situation? Wow, yeah, I guess it's all out in the open now, listeners. Lauren Lee Chen is going to be on Jeopardy. So if you want to retroactively cheer me on, mark the date Tuesday, January twenty fourth on your calendars and tune in. Obviously you can't disclose how oh, the Yeah, but if I phrase it in such a way where when you got the final Jeopardy, do you still have a chance of winning? Can you say that? Uh, I'll say that... Week one, if you had a chance of winning. You want to stay to the win. Yeah, you win. Anyway, we can take that discussion off air. Andrew, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. 